Like I said, our scripture passage is Nehemiah chapter 10, but I'll be beginning in verse 38 of chapter 9 for a little bit of context. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Nehemiah, starting in chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluch, Harim, Miramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Meaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Yeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hanadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodaiah, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Perash, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunni, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harith, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshezebel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Eniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Measeah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluch, Harim, Baena. The, the rest, hallelujah. We made it. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a yearly, yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle 
as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to read that sermon text one more time. No? Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, as we just read, we'll be continuing our study of Nehemiah. As we've said, the book of Nehemiah tells the story of God's people rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, which is precisely what the church is called to do today. And so we have been turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how we should go about doing this. When the church is in disrepair, what should Christians be doing? In the midst of a society that cares very little for the pursuit of holiness or the word of God, what should be our posture and action as his people? Last week, we witnessed Ezra leading the community of returned exiles in a day of mourning and repentance for their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. We saw them separate from their foreign neighbors. We saw them steep themselves in God's law and then confess their sins in response to what they heard. So you see, in order for them to be created anew, the people of Israel had to repent for past sins. And as we build God's house, we should marinate in God's word. We should confess our sins boldly in response without qualifications because these are the very things that set us apart as his church in the world. And today, we have come to chapter 10 where Israel is committing themselves by oath to live as God's holy people. And so we'll be talking about intermarriage. We'll be talking about the significance of the Sabbath and the support of temple worship and life together as God's people. And we will be talking about what that means for us as we seek to build God's city among the cities of man. And so we begin, as Paul read, at the end of chapter 9. And as Ezra says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. In other words, because because you, Yahweh, are a faithful covenant-keeping God, because we are a people who repeatedly fail to obey you, and because we are distressed and oppressed by those in power, we, we commit to a covenant with you. So Ezra is making a covenant with God that obligates the people of Israel to a, to a full obedience of God's law. And in making this covenant, Ezra whether he knows it or not, is actually imitating a covenant renewal that King Josiah undertook 
to stave off of Israel's exile in 2 Kings. Let's read that and just notice the similarities. 2 Kings 23, verse 3. And the king, King Josiah, stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. It sounds like our text today, doesn't it? But King Josiah's covenant differed from previous covenants in this, that the people initiated it. The people are making the commitments, not God. And likewise today, Ezra's covenant is initiated by the people and commits the people to particular actions and particular obediences. Now, if you know the story, King Josiah's covenant was not kept and the people of God were cursed and given over to their enemies, but perhaps Perhaps Ezra's covenant, if obeyed, will lead God to restore Israel in this new city. But we'll have to see. So I'm sure as Paul read, you were all dizzied by the names and peoples in this gathered company. And there is plenty we could notice about these names. It really isn't just a random list. But that said, I don't want to spend our time on that this morning. But what I do want you to notice is the listed organization of the people, Nehemiah and Zadok, the priests, the Levites, the chiefs, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, everyone all the way down to the smallest child. It's a list that not only emphasizes Israel's unanimity, but it shows them to be an ordered company, an ordered people in their traditional groups. They've been scattered as exiles for 70 years. They're now, if you can follow and track the story, they're becoming more and more ordered as the story has, gone, has come along. God brought them out of a 70-year exile, and the temple now has been rebuilt. The walls of the city have been rebuilt. They've been hearing God's word for days, just steeped in God's word, something that none of them ha- have had for nearly two generations. They've confessed and repented, and now they're all swearing an oath of obedience to God's law, and they're doing it together. Everyone is in on this. And so for the past four chapters, God God has been bringing Israel back from death. He's been bringing them back from darkness and restoring their authentic life as his people, just bit by bit and day by day. He's built a home for them, he's teaching them, he's forgiving them, he's organizing them, and he's been showing them how to live in this home as the people of God. The true life of Israel is being reestablished in the world, right before our eyes. And to put it simply, Israel is all in, all in. Like all in, like that sound that's coming from there, all in. As it says in in verse 29, they all agree to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So this is serious because they, they share in an oath that is reinforced by a curse. In other words, they're saying, if we don't remain faithful in this covenant, 
If we go back on our oath, if we are not true to our word, we know that disaster will come for us. So, whole company is here, bowing to the whole law. They are committing to observe all of God's commands, and yet, in this, that we also see that they annotate their oath, and they mention three places to which they will give special attention. And the first has to do with intermarriage. Let's read verse 30 again. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, so why? We're talking about the whole law they're committing to. But why is this something to which Israel is willing to, to commit? Why is this a concern or a particular concern for them? It actually goes all the way back to the covenant at Sinai itself when God gave Israel the law. Let's read from Exodus and just remind us, where, where does this come from? Where does verse 30, where would it have come from? Let's read in Exodus. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of its sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods." The story of Israel contained many cautionary tales of intermarriage with those who did not worship Yahweh. So the commandment here is not about ethnic purity, but about Israel's heart and worship remaining with Yahweh. Israel was never meant to mix with the nations and, and assimilate into their worship, into their idolatry, or, or enter into mixed marriage and delude their own holiness. Now, I know that a lot of you know this, but it's worth saying, not many people, or sorry, many people who were not Israel did become part of Israel over time. But it was only those who could convert to the true worship of Yahweh who could become God's children. And here's, here's, an, here's a little wrinkle. All the named peoples in Exodus 34 are pagan nations. But at this point in Nehemiah, those nations were not around. So it's possible that these Israelites in Nehemiah could have viewed the letter of the law as something obsolete. In other words, well, I hear you naming all these nations but none of them are around, so maybe I don't need to obey that law. In other words, a young Israelite having heard the law could say, well, God says that we shouldn't marry Girgashites, but he doesn't say anything about Persians. But that's missing the point of the command. And if there was potential for that thinking, it really highlights 
the wisdom in Israel's application of this command, their response to the law. Because in verse 30, even though they're referencing Exodus 34, they name no nations, which suggests that they truly understand the heart behind the command. See, it's for the Israelites here, it's not about not marrying a Hittite, but ensuring Israel's worship of the one true God and not allowing the worship of foreign gods to, to take up residence. For us today, we, we too should take our worship of the triune God as the people of God very seriously. It is something that distinguishes us that we worship one God. Psalm 115 teaches us that we become like the gods we worship. So if we worship lifeless gods, as the psalmist describes, we will be shaped and we will shape the world into a culture of death. We'll shape it in such a way that undoes life. If we worship savage gods, we will become savage people. But when we worship the triune God who is love, we are formed into a people who pursue love and who pursue mercy. It also means on a very simple level for all of us, especially for those of you who are single or dating, it means that if you're looking to marry, don't start dating a non-Christian. Don't date someone or covenant with someone who does not worship the one creator of the universe. Missional dating is not biblical. Missional friendship is, but missional dating is not. It also means, in a very real way for us here, that membership at Sojourn matters. Membership at the church that you are a member matters. It's not about control, and it's not about reaching a number of members that we can feel proud of. It's about guarding the holiness of God's people. It's about taking God's people and who they are and who they're not very seriously. And it also means as a, it also means that when we read an obscure or confusing law in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, we should not immediately move on and say, that probably doesn't matter. That's, that's not a heart that's, that's, that's more bent towards obedience. With a trusting heart, we should read the scriptures and say, even to the obscure laws, there is something here for me. God is teaching me some kind of wisdom in this scripture. And all I can tell you is that is a heart that is bent towards obedience, towards wanting to know. Lord, teach me, like we talked about a few weeks ago, the psalmist in Psalm 119. Lord, teach me. Teach me your ways. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So, first intermarriage, now the Sabbath, the significance of the Sabbath. Both the Sabbath and the Sabbath year, which was the the seventh year, every seventh year. These were very important to the life of Israel. Another thing 
that set them apart, another way of living that set them apart. Now, there are a few scriptures that I'm, I'm going to, to just sort of reference and mention here. They're wonderful, but we really don't have time to read all of them. I will have them behind me as we're talking through this. And I do encourage you to maybe make note of them and, and take a look at them. They're wonderful. Um, but when God commanded the Sabbath in Exodus 20, it was a statute for every Israelite and his whole household to rest for one day on the Sabbath day from all work. And it was the whole household. It was you, your spouse, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your children, even sojourners in your house, anyone who's part of your household, no work, none of you will work on that day. Concerning the crops of the seventh year, Israel was also commanded in Exodus and Leviticus to not sow or harvest any crops every seventh year. Instead, they were to leave that food out so that the poor in their land would have something to eat. And then finally, the exaction of every debt dealt with a command in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, when God told Israel that every seven years, every creditor should forgive all monetary debts that they were owed. And that was done in order to make sure that no one was forced into poverty. Now, what we have here is, we, we, again, remember, this is, what, this is what Israel is committing to in particular. It's the whole law, but in particular, intermarriage, we will not sacrifice our holiness. We will take seriously our holiness and the worship of the one true God. And we will also be a people of the Sabbath. The people of God, blessed with the Sabbath, were tempted in a, with a loophole in this command. It was required by God that they, Israel, not work, but it said nothing about the work of others outside of Israel. It said nothing about the work of the Gentiles. So consequently, the loophole that Israel had was they could rest from their work on the Sabbath, but still take advantage of those who had to work on the Sabbath. So again, this part of the oath seems to be like, like for, just like for intermarriage, it seems to be an application of the law with a lot of great wisdom. Because we could read that, we could read that verse and see Israel saying, we are not going to buy from these merchants who don't know you. But that's not what's happening. They aren't boycotting the merchants in the city. The reason they're committing to not to buy on the Sabbath is so that the Gentile merchants in their city can rest as well. Israel, Israel was made to be a resting people. A people who, who knew that the God, the God of the universe rested on the seventh day and so should they. But Israel isn't, me isn't meant to use the Sabbath as a day of rest unto themselves, but a day in which they give rest to others. They were meant to offer rest in the form of food to the least among them. They were charged to offer rest in the form of forgiveness to those who were most indebted to them. 
Israel is committing to offering rest to those around them, rest from work, rest from hunger, rest from poverty, rest from worry. Really, in Deuteronomy, it talks about a year of release. You are released from your debt, from your obligation. That's an offering of rest. Sojourn, how can we offer rest to each other and to others today? Our neighbors, our coworkers, people that we work for, people that work for us. You know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe there's something to celebrate even in our weekly frustrated realizations that Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. It's funny, but it also probably is something to say, Lord, thank you for giving the employees of Chick-fil-A today off. Maybe. Whose work, whose work do we take advantage of on Sunday? Whose work do we take advantage of that we could refrain from taking advantage of? Are, are you the manager that tells your direct reports, hey, just... Take the day off. Please don't work on this day. Every week we gather as parishes. We either make food or we pick up food or we grab something as we're running out the door, a handful of popcorn and a couple of drinks. But what we do in that is we offer rest to other people because rest is, food is rest for hungry people. Encouragement is rest for the heavy-hearted. Hugs and hand and held hands are rest for the lonely. So where can we, where can we give? Where can we offer rest? Where can you give it? Where can we apply the law with such wisdom? I visited a. Uh, a church in Birmingham last year, an Orthodox church. Um, these two hour long services with just tons and tons of singing, um, standing the whole time for two hours, so it's pretty intense. But I found out from one of the uh, priests there that one day every year, they bring all the members into the sanctuary and they Every member takes time with every other member to ask for forgiveness for anything that they may have done or not done to or for this other person. And every single member meets with every single member. And they talk and they kneel before each other and they pray and they cancel each other's debt. It's pretty incredible. Are we a people who long to do that, who long to cancel debt, who look forward to a seventh year pretty regularly to say, you're forgiven? In this, in this final point, I'm not going to speak as long as I have these first two points, but don't let that tell you that I care about it less. Um, it's actually not true at all. But the commitments that we read the final commitments in verses 32 through 39, 
really can be summed up by the very last portion of verse 39. We will not neglect the house of God. The people commit, every one of them, Levites, priests, chiefs, people, singers, temple servants, guards, gatekeepers, every person commits to give generously in order to support the life of Israel in the temple, in order to support Israel's collective life as the people of God. And everything they pledge to give, every, every furnishing, every element, whether money for the offerings, feasts, or any work in God's house, the very best of the fruit of their work, of their land, their children, their livestock, their tithes, their oil, their wine, their bread, even the particular care of the Levites who work in the temple. They commit wholesale to the care of God's house. Because they know that without God's house, the world loses hope. Without God's house, there is, no, there is no city on a hill to look to. And so in this, what is there for us to learn here? All of us. The people of Nehemiah 10 are giving to God's house in such a way that should challenge us. How are you giving to God's church at Sojourn? How do you long to give to God's church at Sojourn? Are you giving her your presence and your attendance and your engagement on Sunday? What about Sunday prayer? She, she needs you there too. This isn't about numbers, it isn't about metrics, it's about, it's about our commitment as a people to not neglect God's house to not neglect the church, to see her care, to see to her care and all the members of which she is made up. Even giving, even giving. What do you tie to the church each month? Could say that if, if every one of us were, could tithe 10%, that, that the church would have everything that it needs everything that it needs to be the place that it's been called to be. And so Sojourn, as we close today, what do we learn from Nehemiah 10 as we build God's kingdom on earth? Number one, we should take our worship of the one true God seriously. Our, our worship should not mirror or borrow from the world's worship or what it worships. We worship the one true God, and that is part of our holiness. That is a huge part of our holiness. We will not worship the gods of our Western world. So as we build God's kingdom, as we build God's house, we will be a people of holiness who worship him and him alone. Number two, when, when we read any part of God's word, even when its application seems obscure or unneeded, let us, let us have obedient hearts that say, there is something here for me. God is teaching me his ways and his commands. Number three, as we build, we, we remember and we live into this reality that we're a Sabbath people. We rest, but, but we are also meant to offer rest to others. 
in food and friendship, forgiveness, festivities, laughter, prayer, aid, anything that we have to offer to anyone in need because we want to offer rest. Four, finally, as we build, that we will, as we build God's church, that we would see to the care of God's church, giving her whatever she needs to live and thrive. Our time, our presence, our prayers, our money, our service, our gifts, so that she will be the house of worship that she is meant to be. And to all, and to all the kids of Sojourn, you look at me for a second? All the kids of Sojourn, Edie, Abigail, hey Rose, everybody, Micah, Davy. That also means you. It also means that you have, you have things to give the church. You have gifts. You have gifts and beauties to give the church. You have mercy to give the church. And I want you, I want you to talk to the people in your parish. And maybe if you have a question of, well, what can I give to my parish? I know they'll have answers for you of what you can give. And maybe you're even giving right now and you don't even know it. But it's for you as well. So, Jim, we can rest because Jesus has given us rest in his gospel. The battle has been won. The throne has been filled. Our enemy has been defeated on the cross and in the grave. We rest in his finished work, and when he comes again, we will enter a a seventh-day rest that will never end. We can pursue holiness because the one who has set us apart for his good purposes has promised that he will make us partakers of the divine nature. And one day he'll resurrect us in a fullness and holiness that will fulfill all our greatest hopes. And we can give our time, our money, ourselves today to see God's house furnished and filled with everything that she needs because we follow a bridegroom who sees to his bride. He sees to us even now as he's preparing the new heavens and new earth that one day will descend and make everything new. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have, you have covenanted with us to teach us. Lord, you've promised us if we, if, we, uh, if we live according to your word, if we live by your word, we will live by your word. So Lord, make us a people. Make us a people who God care so deeply about holiness. Lord, that we, wouldn't, we would not covenant with any other God. We would not worship anyone else but you. The God of the scriptures. God, would you make us a people who rest well, and in resting well, look, we look simultaneously for people who, who are in need of rest so that we might provide rest for them. And Lord, Lord, may we be a people who give, Lord, who see to the care of your church, to the outfitting and filling of your church. Lord, we love you and we need you. 
Please, please help us, we pray. And we ask it in your name. Amen.